on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, yes, it is America's Talk Radio Show about opera. It's Opera Box oh. Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams. All right, in Chalk Talk. Is it that time of year already? Ugh, brother. We uh, <laughs> turn to the men's NCAA March Madness bracket, which is set. We're going to make our own brackets to pick the winningest opera composer of the last 400 years. It's a multi-show segment. I can't wait. Neither can Oliver. And then Opera <laughs> Philadelphia has just announced its 22-23 season featuring friends of the show, Larry Brownlee and David T. Little. And titles including The Backwards Boheme and The Other Atello plus Two Minute Drill. Artists continue to raise their voices in support of Ukraine while Universal gets out of Russia. All right, if you're watching on TDO, you want to make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Get that full show. Stitcher and Spotify. You click follow on Apple Podcasts. Hit the plus sign. And of course, send us a voice memo. Email us your hot takes. Opperboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin. Just for sharing your hot take, Oliver Camacho, great to see you. It is great to be seen on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Man, kills every time. Matt Cummings, thanks for hanging in there and doing the show with us tonight. I mean, I wasn't sure if if you guys were really even going to miss me, but I decided to... um bring my own presence back on what my is own going volition. on with when we have one we lose the other where's ashley today uh have yeah. you ever seen us in the same place we may in fact be one person doing a complicated farce neither of you are weston williams i know that much it's true i'm here i'm wearing green i think the show is going to drop on saint patrick's day or like very close to it so no one can pinch me today but you can pitch uh, uh matt and oliver as much as you want you can kiss your iphone when you're listening to this Please do. Thanks in public. Uh, Ashley says Tom Brady has announced his unretirement from the NFL and will be (laughs) returning to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers this season. She says, in completely unrelated news, local sports opera radio host Ashley Hardgrave was seen setting an abandoned building on fire, allegedly shouting, why, God, why? That was actually the mental image in my my mind (laughs) when I was reading that news. I saw it like in split screen. (laughs) The uh, Major League Baseball owners and players have settled their lockout, and baseball will be played this season. Hooray. Let's talk some opera. (laughs) Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. All right, we're going to get right into it. The men's NCAA March Madness bracket is all set. 64-plus teams competing. Lots of smack to be talked. I'm sure we want to preview... Our selections for our multi-show bracket. We're going to start with uh, myself and Matt this week, Weston and Ashley in a future week, and Oliver will be sitting on a throne, selecting the <laughs> metrics for my how my we're rightful pick. place as the <laughs> judge. <laughs> Finally, there's that so, creative yeah. consultant title coming. In. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is what is the premise of this year's March Madness? So, previous years we've done. Uh, well, last year we did the Dark Horses. 
of opera. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I forget what we did the year before. It's been so long ago that you, that you, was COVID, COVID year one. <laughs> was uh, that year time. we took MOT's bracket and played through it. Oh, okay, that's right. No, okay. that's right. Look at, this, look at this guy. Yeah, I hope. Yeah. I hope uh, the the is there a memory? Known, is there a Michigan recall component <laughs> now known as the Detroit Opera? Detroit no Opera. Yeah. 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 Here's, well, here's the idea. This year we are focusing on composers, and we're focusing on the entire. If the composer is the school or the team, then the pieces of repertoire are the players. So we're going to be making our arguments for a composer based on their entire body of work. Mm. Each of our panelists picks four composers, one from the 18th, one from the 19th, one from the 20th, and to make sure that we're lifting up the most contemporary voices, one from the 21st century. Again, this is the centuries in which that composer was releasing most of their work. Mm-hmm. So, so we've sorry, ruled out Monteverdi. We've ruled out uh, <laughs> your Claudio's Monteverdi opera. Okay, I got gotcha. you. I see yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> what's going on. Uh, Matt Cummins, you and I are going to go first. I'm going to shut up and let you talk us through your four composers and centuries. Okay, let's start at the very beginning, which, as Addison has commonly been said, is a very good place to start. Um, and so, my 18th century pick, I'm going to seed uh, the one and only Jean Philippe Rameau. French court composer extraordinaire, maybe not one of the most performed composers of all time, but incredibly influential. Mm. Not just because of his writings on music theory that were really foundational for classical composition for almost 200 years until Weston's faves started messing with them, (laughs) Um, but because of the way he evolved French Baroque opera beyond the very, very speaky and not interesting to other people than French aristocrats, Lully, sorry. And Oliver. Of course. I am taking a Hot shot at the judges, maybe in Chicago. <laughs> maybe not the best strategy, but I'm here to play, baby. I'm here to win. Um, just in terms of the way that it seamlessly integrated uh, aria and recitative into kind into something that was neither fully one nor the other, and arioso and choruses and dances, you could say Wagner even ripped Rameau's Gesamtkunstwerke off a century <laughs> later. And in fact, I do say that. Um, <laughs> Because I'm just taking pot shots at everyone. I'm here to play. Anyway, who's he going up against? Yes, he is going up against... Well, here's the overarching vision for my four composers. I picked all British composers. Oh, is that a drinking Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, That feels like a drink. That feels like a drink uh, for all of us. So for like the 18th should. century, of course, it had to be Handel. Mm. Okay. Who was Technically really German, British. but okay. Yeah. Never heard of him. <laughs> You know, the German writing at Italian operas. You want to talk repertoire. Let's talk repertoire. Handel, over 40 operas to his name, plus countless oratorios as well. This one is going to be a walkover. 19th century, this was, this was an absolute no-brainer as well. Gilbert and Sullivan, the, it, it, cheating a little bit because I've got sort of two people. I guess it could, should technically be Gilbert. Just Arthur Sullivan. Gilbert yeah. is axed. <laughs> Sorry, well, Dilbert's the librettist, so definitely wouldn't be Gilbert. Anyway, um, I mean, you know I'm a sucker for some GNS. I think this is going to be a great uh, choice. Who's your next? I think we know who's going to uh, lose that particular bracket with Oliver <laughs> in the judge seat. Yeah, and I'm definitely not playing to my audience at all by picking <laughs> the one and only Gaetano Donizetti as my, as my composer for the 19th century because I really feel like he does not get the credit he deserves because his music is a li- his operas are a little bit more hard to pin down than a lot of his contemporaries or followers. Um, in turn, and what I mean by that is like you know what a Rossini aria sounds like, 
you know what a Bellini aria sounds like. If I told you just about that we're going to listen to a Donizetti aria, like that could be anything from La Fille du Regiment to the Anna Bolena Mad scene. And for a composer to be that good in both of those milieux um, really says something about his the way that he can craft the musical drama and in a way that not that masters the highly formal Italian music of the first half of the 19th century, but also transcends it to create these moments of really pure mm. human pathetic. And I mean that in like the pathos way drama. Mm. Mm. Uh, I don't, I also don't think that you would have Giuseppe Verdi without Donizetti. That's not exactly a hot take, but he, that, that lineage is, is pretty clear when you, when you look at where Donizetti started as a composer and where he ended, it was a really transformational period, uh, transit and transitional period of time. So, so, so far the matchups are Handel versus Rameau and Donizetti versus Arthur Sullivan. Uh, George, who is your 20th century pick? First of all, I appreciate you mentioning Verdi because I made an executive decision. No Mozart, no Verdi and no Puccini in this entire bracket. Because I think it's just, it would be too unbalanced. Um, 20th century, this is where my heavy hitter comes in, Benjamin Britten. Ooh. Such a great body of work. So moving, so colored and specific in its orchestration. I, this, is, this guy is not going to lose. Unless he loses to <laughs> the one and only Richard Strauss. And there's the no, reason why... No way. The reason why I pick Strauss is I can't think of many composers who I who embody the kind of schism of what happened to classical music in the 20th century more than Richard Strauss because mm. the man has the range. He's got the shocking <laughs> angularity of Salome that's still controversial basically to this day versus that aching lyricism of something like Rosencavalier or even some of the lesser known ones like Daphne or Schweig's I'm a Frau that don't necessarily um, get done as much, partially because they're so freaking insane <laughs> in terms of their <laughs> demands on, on singers and orchestras. Um, but he, he is a complicated man with a complicated legacy and wrote very harmonically complicated operas that took the language of the 20th century and made it make sense to people who were used to listening to music of other eras. And I would argue, even as much as I love Benjamin Britten, Strauss manages to kind of disguise the novelty of some of some of his compositions, and in a way that really mm. uh, shows that kind of mastery of of his vocabulary and of the art form. Cannot wait for that matchup. And then finally, we have the twenty first century pick, uh, a much smaller body of work by nature, but. Uh... George, who are you going to go with to start? Well, again, this is really important to me in our bracket this year to have 21st century composers to really uplift the voices. So that you could keep doing British white guys. <laughs> uh, it's true. My last choice uh, is is a British male, Ian Bell, friend of the show. First of all, I just I think Ian is fantastic. And I love his work. Christmas Carol, the, the one-man version of Christmas Carol in 2014, a piece on Jack the Ripper in 2019, and his opera Stonewall, also mm. from 2019. This composer is so unique in his voice. There's really no one like him. The material that he picks, the way he uses the orchestration, and I might add, there was no one who hustles harder in this business to get commissions and to get his work out there. Matt? He's got to go up against uh, one of the it composers of the moment, 
uh, and for good reason, Missy Mazzoli, who is just a fascinating composer in terms of all of her influences and actually kind of in a similar way to what I what I feel like I latch on to about Strauss operas is that she takes really, really complex ideas, not just musical ideas, but like philosophical ideas and weaves them together with things that people know to make something that both makes a statement and is entirely new and enti- and completely unique and, and so fully her own voice, um, but in a way that also pays homage to to the art form's history and to the legacy uh, and to, and makes a really strong statement about what it means to move this art form forward and to do it in a way that people still want to listen to what you're writing. <laughs> so we're filling out the bracket today. Um, we heard four picks from Matt, uh, his 18th century pick, Jean-Philippe Rameau, his 19th century pick, Gaetano Donizetti, the 20th century, Ricard Strauss, and the 21st century, Missy Mazzoli. On the British side of things, George has chosen George Friedrich Handel for his 18th century, Gilbert and Sullivan, also just Sullivan, for his 19th century pick, Benjamin Britten for the 20th century, and Ian Bell for the 21st century. Once again, the rules are, which we didn't state up front, no Mozart, no Verdi, no Puccini. Next week, we will hear from Weston and Ashley. So excited for that. A little bit of sports talk before we get into period number two of our Opera hockey game tonight. Oliver Camacho, what is your sports talk? Well, um, former uh, U.S. Open and uh, Australian Open champion uh, Naomi Osaka has been defeated in the second round of the Indian Wells uh, Masters Tournament after a uh, audience member heckled her saying, you suck. She sort yeah. of broke down mentally and... Uh, she wants to remind people that, you know, there was a time when people heckled Venus and Serena Williams and they stopped coming to Indian Wells tournament. And uh, she reminds us that it wasn't, uh, I mean, they were, they were heckled basically because they were black. And uh, that's all she said, you know, um, and who knows if she's going to come back to Indian Wells. But, um, you know, people in the audience, yes, you know, you can cheer for, for your favorites, but there's no reason to shout at another player. This is a very difficult game. It requires a lot of concentration. And not only is there an opponent across the net, but each player is also uh, trying to be the best they can be, which is its own challenge in a game like tennis. So whoever you were, kick rocks. Yeah, exactly. Tennis is an extremely lonely sport when you're out there one-on-one. I, it's despicable to think that that happened. The Chicago Cubs, the Ricketts family that owns the Cubs, are considering buying Chelsea Football Club in London. Dipping their toe the, into the oligarch pool. Exactly. The, <laughs> the club is owned by Roman Abramovich, and he is selling the club because of his connections with Russia. Get this. So the Ricketts family bought the Cubbies for $845 million dollars. You will be lucky to get Chelsea FC for less than double that, I would guess. Uh, the amount of money that's being thrown around there is probably would make my head spin. I mean, that is a brand that has a lot of meaning all over the globe. Exactly. You know, not just outside the north side. Opera Philadelphia announced its 22 23 season earlier this week, did it not, Weston? 
It did indeed. And of course, uh, I, I want to say like we're huge fans of Opera Philadelphia here. They're close friends of the show. We're hoping uh, that we're going to get invited back. <laughs> hint, hint, hint. We love Opera Philadelphia. Everyone should go. And um, they're really close to the family of the show. If we're being honest, <laughs> if you uh, if you send an email to uh, Opera Philadelphia telling them to give us free tickets, we'll send you a free uh, uh, lapel pin and uh, yeah. beer coaster. Um, but uh, we wanted to highlight their season, which they uh, announced earlier this week. We've got oh, the return. They annou- they announced on Wednesday, uh, yeah. so just if you're listening on Thursday, just yesterday. So this is embargoed, wow, yeah. but we are coming to you from the past when we... <laughs> <laughs> this is not a crime. <laughs> we are not under arrest. Uh, the first thing on, on our list here is the return of Festival O in September, Yay! which uh, features the premiere of Rossini's Otello at the Academy of Music with friend of the show Lawrence Brownlee in his 18th Rossini role debut as Rodrigo. Uh, I, I'm really excited about that because, you know, I've uh, I, Otello is one of my favorite Verdi operas, and I don't know. Uh, I, I've never seen the Rossini it's version. very different. Like, I would um, imagine like almost so. entirely different in terms of, like, what the plot points are, even as much as the... Um, the, just the musical stylings, but the music is fantastic. There's a confrontation scene uh, between Otello and Iago that just is one of those dizzying Rossini tenor scenes where like your jaw just drops lower and lower as you're listening to it because you're like, how are they possibly making that noise? It is unbelievable. <laughs> and, and Verdi is said to have been inspired by uh, Rossini's last act in his inclusion of the Willow Song and mm. Prayer which we also have in Rossini's opera, which preceded, obviously, Verdi's masterpiece. But yeah, so not inspired the... by the Shakespeare. It's inspired by another source for Otello. Is that right, Matt? I think so. I, I think it's like the I think it's Amboise inspired... Thomas Hamlet yeah. in that way. Or the Capuletti yeah. Eddie Montecchi version mm-hmm. of Romeo yeah. and Juliet that's like inspired yeah. by the same source material, but not the Shakespeare. Uh, one one thing they have on this season is is something very interesting. Opera on film, which is going to be a film festival within Festival O, so just festivals all the way down. Festivalception. It's a party. Uh, it's got <laughs> screenings of, and I'm just going to read from the release here: new and classic opera films, both short form and feature length, that charts a collaborative future for cinematic opera. Um, and uh, uh, they're actually opening this week a a call for entries that are encouraging producers and artists to submit their own film projects to be screened at the festival, which I find really interesting. Just as a a reminder to folks, um, the O Festival, I forget exactly what year it started, maybe 2017 or 2016, is a little festival that they, instead of doing one opera to start their season, they do like a, a whole event that's a week long that has a main stage opera this year. The main stage opera is the Otello and it has a bunch of uh, you know, side projects, uh, some sort of bridge and tunnel stuff, and uh, like a chamber opera. Uh, and now they're introducing this video component, which is just trying to show that, you know, this is the future of opera. We've already been yeah. doing it for two years. So exactly. I guess we should keep doing it. Well, th- this this is where Opera Philadelphia is so darn smart, because as you say, Oliver, they know that Everyone in the business has been working and trying out film over the last two years. So what they're able to do now is uplift the most unusual of those voices and put and put it under the the Opera Philadelphia and the Festival O banner. This is not to say that they're they're stealing that material, they're taking credit for that material. Is that they're able to to 
promote that work that's already being done at an even higher level. What is stroke of mm-hmm. genius? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Another thing I'm looking forward to is the world premiere of Friend of the Show, David T. Little, and Ann Wal- uh, Waldman's Black Lodge, which he's been working on for a while. He occasionally posts update on his fa- updates on his Facebook. It's going to be a combination live performance as well as a surrealist film. I believe it is actually uh, uh, based, um, or at least inspired by, to some extent, Twin Peaks, which I'm that a huge fan of. That was my first question, was how... <laughs> How uh, how much of an homage is it? I, I don't know how much it's like actually the Black Lodge from Twin Peaks or telling the story, but uh, I, I have seen a couple of posts from David that explicitly draw uh, reference the uh, David Lynch uh, Twin Peaks. And, Zigzags, uh, get ready. I, I mean, honestly, I think Twin Peaks, I think a collaboration with, with David Lynch and, uh, and David T. Little would be so much David first and foremost. That would be but... <laughs> And, and the, the piece is it almost, produced it almost by, sounds like um, uh, George's bracket. <laughs> the piece is produced by Beth Morrison Projects. I mean, again, this feels like something which is just a, a perfect uh, project for, for that company to share with Opera Philadelphia, a surrealist film with a live rock opera. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm really excited about that one. There's another, there's the company premiere of Toshio uh, Hosokawa's The Raven based on Edgar Allan Poe's Raven. It's an immersive new production according to the press release here, from Toronto-based director Arya Umezawa. Yeah, Arya um, Umezawa, good friend of mine, fabulous director. I can't, if there was one thing that I would want to see in this <laughs> festival, this would be it. It's not Absolutely. in the festival. That's in their season. This is in the main, Excuse me. main that's, season. That's, that's yes. my mistake. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Also, uh, also so closing out the main season, uh, another, you know, like the Rossini Otello um uh, another name you recognize, but perhaps uh, would not, you would go in and expect something different. They're uh, doing the Yuval Sharon staging of La Boheme, uh, where they do it in reverse order, starting with Act 4 and ending with Act 1. And I think that this 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 staging is really having a moment right now, because I feel like everyone's doing it. Everyone's realizing that uh, everyone's seen La Boheme forwards. It's time to see it backwards and recontextualize it a little bit. Here's the thing. I I don't know what the production is going to look like, but I've been thinking a lot about this idea. I would love to talk to Yuval Sharon about how he got to this point. And I've been thinking, what are other operas out there that you could do in reverse order and they could have some sort of monument. Honestly, impact. if you did a Twin Peaks opera, it, it's right Everything's there. Everything's in reverse. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I forget. Is this the uh, production that's being happening at Des Moines, right? The, Detroit. Uh, it's also a Detroit opera. Detro- is it Detroit or Des Moines? Yeah. Oh, it's a Detroit. Okay. I forget. Yeah, Detroit. Michigan Opera Theater. Formerly known as Michigan Opera Theater. But uh, I'd like to see who else is doing this uh, backwards. Also, also Boston Lyric Opera and Spoleto Festival, the, the oh, US okay. side. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like the new Barry Kosky Magic Flute. Everybody wants to do just, it backwards. It's just such a simple Don't put a curse idea. on it like that. And how is it going to be executed? That's what I want to know. Could, yeah. could yeah. you do this in Traviata? Could you do this in Marriage yeah. of Figaro? That's what I dream about at night. Everything is like Yoda. Mimi, they call me. <laughs> super excited want... for this festival uh and hey you know who knows and remember uh, we are here uh, pr pr team at uh, opera philadelphia we are here there are five of us we can squeeze into two rooms i think because weston and i basically can cuddle 
Uh, I don't know who else to cuddle. I mean, like, who do I cuddle with now that Toby's here? I don't know if I'm going to cuddle with Weston. I'm sorry. You're actually, you need two beds. We actually probably need extra rooms because of Weston. <laughs> so, again, a great festival coming out of Philadelphia. Now, if they could only just clean up their sports fans' acts in that city, then Philly's really going to have something going for it. Currently, Philly sports fans are literally the worst people in the world, and everybody knows it. <laughs> Right, Two-minute drill is Destroying. not the worst thing in the world. It's probably not the best thing in the world, but it is right now. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. The Board of Opera Europa has offered unequivocal support to its members in Ukraine and the country's people. Art has always remained at the forefront of humanitarian values, they said. We strongly believe that art cannot be subservient to political propaganda. Instead, it should be utilized for developing critical thinking and promoting dialogue. Meanwhile, artists from the Odessa National Opera and Ballet Theater have called for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Ukrainian opera director Yevhen Eugene Lavrinchuk, who was arrested in Italy at Russia's request over two months ago, has been released. Lavrinchuk said that he hoped to be, quote, the last ever victim of Russian exploitation of Interpol. A British charity set up to support St. Petersburg's Mariinsky Theater has closed. Since 1992, the Anglo-Russian Opera and Ballet Trust has raised millions for Russian arts organizations and boasted Prince Charles as its patron. The charity was set up by conductor Valery Gergiev, a high-profile friend of Vladimir Putin. Universal Music Group is shutting down its offices and suspending operations in Russia. The company said, We urge an end to the violence in Ukraine as soon as possible. We are adhering to international sanctions and along with our employees and artists have been working with groups from a range of countries to support humanitarian relief efforts to bring urgent aid to refugees in the region. Universal owns the prestige classical music record labels Deutsche Grammophon, Decca Classics, and EMI. Famed composer Arvo Pert has issued a statement in support of Ukraine. Dear friends in Ukraine, dear colleagues, dear all fighting for your home at the price of your life, we bow before your bravery. Bravery in the face of nearly unbearable suffering. We are with you as much as we are able to. All that is left to us is a lump in our throats and tears and prayers. Words have begun to lose their meaning. Forgive us. Forgive us for failing to protect you from a disaster unimaginable in our time. Composer Olga Neuwirth has won the 2022 International Ernst von Siemens Music Prize for a life of service in music. The announcement comes months after winning the $100,000 Grammavire Award for composition for her opera Orlando, which was the first work by a woman to be performed by the Vienna State Opera back in 2019. The music director of Trinity Wall Street, Julian Wachner, a conductor, composer, and keyboardist who's been a fixture at that church for more than a decade, has been accused by a former Juilliard employee of sexual assault. Trinity said it had hired outside counsel to investigate. Quote, Julian was placed on administrative leave on March 1 and will remain on leave during the investigation. Trinity takes these allegations very seriously. Opera Vision has been granted 2 million euros from the European Union's Creative Europe program. The financial support is designated for the platform to continue offering free live streams and on-demand content from companies all over Europe, some of them little known. The 30 partnering companies across 16 countries include the Rossini Festival in Pesaro, La Monet in Brussels, and Irish National Opera. 
In trade news, the Teatro Carlo Felice in Genoa has named Riccardo Minasi its new music director, in a contract lasting through 2025. The conductor, who is also one of Italy's top Baroque violinists, makes his debut at the house conducting La Cenerentola this fall. Exit stage right, soprano Judith Beckman has died at the age of 86. The American soprano was born in Jamestown, North Dakota. In 1962, she made her debut at the National Theater of Braunschweig in Cosi Fantuta. That debut led her to the Deutsche Oper Berlin and the Bavarian State Opera, and in 1964, Beckmann became a member at the Deutsche Oper am Rhein. And on this day, March 14th, in 1847, it was the first performance of Verdi's opera Macbeth, the version that we don't hear anymore. That was in Florence. In 1871, Swedish-American soprano Olive Fremstad was born in Stockholm. In 1885, the Mikado had its premiere uh, at the Savoy <laughs> in London. In 1929, Fedor Shalyapin gave his final performance as Boris Gudunov at the Metropolitan mm-hmm. Opera. In 1938, Bruno Walter resigned from the Vienna State Opera after Nazis consolidated Austria. The German conductor was forced to leave the country with his property confiscated. And that's your two-minute drill. Fiorenza Cosotto singing an aria that you have probably never heard from Macbeth, uh, Triomphai. Uh, this is the aria from Act Two that was replaced by La Luce Langue when Verdi revised the opera about 20 years after this initial premiere. But it was recorded on uh, Cosotto's recording of the full opera with Riccardo Muti conducting. That's more of an Anna Bolena aria rather than uh, Odon Fatale. It's cuckoo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oliver Universal and its entire stable of labels is leaving Russia. That's presumably a pretty big blow. I mean, hopefully they will go back. There are a lot of important artists who are Russian and who probably prefer to record on the piano that they've been rehearsing on after all Mm -hmm. these years. I don't know exactly how EMI, Deutsche Gramophone, and um, DECA do it these days. Uh, They're... I, mean, I didn't so realize they had all been consolidated under one parent company. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's kind of wild, isn't it? Yeah. After years of rivalry. It's, it is very strange that this is what's happened to the recording industry. And, you know, they still have the biggest names like Daniil Trifonov and uh, a certain soprano who's been canceled. And, mm-hmm. uh, you, know, <laughs> um, you know, but um, yeah, that they no longer will be operating in Russia, I suspect is just temporary until this whole thing blows over. But I would uh, say just... 
probably less likely to be temporary is the ending of the the charity between uh, where Prince Charles is a patron uh, supporting the <laughs> yeah. the Russian artist of he the Marine Theater. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That family. yeah. I, I I will say this: uh, Universal leading Russia. I mean, I uh, this makes me. I mean, obviously, very concerned about you know uh, over the past you know. 30, 40 years at this point, you've just seen the classical music labels get weaker and weaker and less flush with cash. Um, and I'm almost a little bit worried that, you know, if this conflict drags on for a really long time, maybe they just were like, I won't be worth it to start it back up again, you know? And I, I think the biggest tragedy to befall classical music over the past 40 years is the um, is the lack of really good studio recordings of operas and large-scale works uh, coming out. They still do happen sometimes, and they're very good yeah. live performances now. But uh, I do think that the way most people outside of the classical music world experience music is through recordings. And um, and I just, you know, I it, make, it, it makes me very nervous that someone's going to say, let's just not bother starting it back up again and use this as an excuse to further mm -hmm. um, bring down these labels. Um, Possibly, but in this moment, look, as artists, there's a couple different ways you can really affect what is going on in Ukraine. You can make art. You can do these... Um, you can do a piece about it. You can do a benefit concert so you're supporting financially and you can withdraw finances, right? And this is clearly the way in terms of economic art sanctions that many different organizations are deciding to punish justly, I might add, Russia. Yeah, but they're also punishing uh, Russian artists who have nothing to do with this conflict. And hopefully those artists who are based in Russia will be able to go over to, you know, they make recordings in Germany, they make recordings in other Eastern yeah. European countries. Or they could just start up Melodia again, you know, get the, get, get that old Iron Curtain, you know, <laughs> LP exchange going but again, you know what I mean? Just to dovetail on what you were saying before, Weston, it is, for me, somebody like me who is like a recording, recording file. Right. Um, gramophile. Mm -hmm. Gramophile. Gramophile, let's, I think is correct. Um, um, there was a time when if you were a marquee singer you would get to sing a recital or an ARI recital of your, you know, your best repertoire. And Nadine Sierra just got one, God bless her, you know, but there are so many artists right now who don't have that opportunity. And even when they do get that opportunity, if they have chorus in that aria or the tenor singing the little bit in Sempre Libra, you know, we don't get that anymore. It's like, they just slash and left and right, you know? So we just mm -hmm. get these orchestral reductions of everything. Mm -hmm. And, it doesn't feel rich anymore, you know? Even yeah. uh, Arvo Pert is wading into the fray. <laughs> exactly. I think it's just so strange to hear Arvo Pert expressing, like, a political opinion. Because that he speaks. I mean, like, when was the last time we heard him? You know? <laughs> I know. He's <laughs> so quiet. Like, I, I literally imagine him, like, cloistered in an abbey yeah. in Estonia <laughs> somewhere 24-7 just with his hands like I this. I feel like the last thing we heard was the Bjork interview. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but as I, I a... highly, I highly recommend watching that interview if anyone listening hasn't, because if you imagine what Arvo Pert's music sounds like, and then imagine the person who wrote that music, that is exactly who it is. Arvo Pert is that this like quiet, very con con contemplative uh, person uh, who is very much concerned with uh, all things spiritual. 
and I it's just so strange and to hear him commenting everywhere. On, just like, yeah, it's just so he, just... strange to hear him commenting on like a a, a big political situation. Um, well, yeah, but as an Estonian, this has to exactly. feel like deja vu all over again. And you know, to some extent, like even though like oh, the past you know twenty years or so have been like very much you know he's been cloistered away in his. <laughs> In his abbey somewhere, uh, he, we do have to remember, like he, he's always been a very political composer. In that, you know, when he started composing uh, on religious texts, especially his first piece was twelve tone, the first twelve tone piece in Estonia. Um, the, a lot of conflict there, especially you know when there was officially no religion allowed under uh, the USSR, and the fact that he was so religious in his music was, you know, very political in the day, too. So it's it's kind of useful to remember that, you know, there's always been that political element, even for someone as seemingly removed from it all as Arvo Pert. Lastly, Opera Europa taking a stand here on the war in Ukraine. This is critical to have Opera Europa, an organization of over 200 members across Europe, coming together and releasing one statement for the value of art. I'm not even sure that Opera America has released a statement. Its artists perhaps have, but this is a big deal and they are all directly affected by this Mm -hmm. war. Going to leave a few extra minutes for an extra long good call, bad call. Here we go. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Oh my goodness. An extra long good call, bad call before we wrap up this show. We're going to kick it off with Oliver Camacho. Well, if you're in Chicago um, this weekend, Sunday and Monday, uh, the 20th and the 21st, Amanda Forsyth, friend of the show, is making her debut with Music of the Broke in arias uh, with the orchestra, including Dido's Lament, uh, Da Tempeste from uh, Julio Caesar, and uh, I think the Haydn... Shana de Berenice, I think is what she's doing. I'm not sure. That but sounds right. She's brilliant, and uh, you should go hear her sing live because she always delivers. A uh, friend of the show, Haymarket Opera, is continuing their season with their um, Lenten Oratorio. This time it's Caldara, I think. Caldara's La Susana. I don't know if it's Caldara or not. I think it's Caldara. Uh, and that's coming up at the end of this month. Check it out if you are so inclined to enjoy Lent in an oratorio type of way. <laughs> and does that does that oratorio include the Pisa Hearn aria that's typically part of Susanna? <laughs> uh, and then shout out to a uh, personal friend, uh, Eli McCormick, Elijah McCormick, male soprano, who was uh, featured in an article by uh, Zoe Madonna in the Boston Globe Uh The opera that uh, he performed in recently uh, was called Night Town, and the composer specifically made the um, character gender fluid by giving the um, character the name of Bell asterisk, so it could be either Bello or Bella. Mm. And I think this opera, Night Town, is based on James Joyce's Ulysses. So that opera Mm. already happened. And we'd love to get uh, Elijah on the show uh, at some point. But at any rate, uh, thank you, Zoe, for featuring him. Matt Cummings. 
I feel like I need to return to the show in peak form with two of my favorite things, recording recommendations and singing the praises of Sandra Radvanovsky, uh, <laughs> whom I stan. Uh, in the time that's allowed, I don't know if this got mentioned on an earlier one with my name attached to it, but it, on an, uh, since my last show with all you fine people, uh, Lyric Opera of Chicago has released an album of Sandra's uh, the Three Queens final scenes, uh, which actually Oliver and I attended in November of 2019, right before everything changed in <laughs> so many ways. I I love this music, clearly, since I nominated Donizetti for my, for my stalking <laughs> horse in, uh, in the bracket. Uh, and I just... I, it's so interesting to listen to all the different versions of these arias and who can, who has the ability to make what choices. And this Sandra Radvanovsky has 17 lungs. I don't know how she floats these <laughs> phrases. She can make any choice that she wants. And it is fascinating to hear which ones she chooses to do. So check that out if you haven't already. Weston Williams. Uh, the New York Times was kind enough to bring to my personal attention that uh, this upcoming July 16th will mark the 100th year of Wozzeck. Uh, um, the opera was actually premiered in 1925, uh, as we all know uh, by heart. Um, but he did finish <laughs> editing the manuscript. Uh, Alban Berg finished editing the manuscript on July 16th of 1922. Therefore, uh, the uh, in preparation for what I think, if we try hard, we can make into an interna international holiday by July... Uh, the New York Times released this uh, sort of retrospective uh, of uh, what Wozzeck means to the opera world um, and to singers, to conductors, to composers. It actually features uh, two friends of the show, at least two. I, I don't think I'm forgetting anybody. We've got a uh, commentary from Christine Gerke and uh, David T. Little uh, as well. And I was struck reading it like... Every time I go back to Wozzeck, I'm, I'm just like struck with how essentially dramatic it, it is, how perfect of an opera it is, and how astounding that it was the first opera of two by Alban Berg. And just like it really shows the expressive potential of this art form as its own art form and not as an imitation of something else, not as a replacement for a play, you know, but as something truly of its own. The music is so expressive. The uh, the invention of the atonality, the, the way everything's constructed in um, in non operatic forms to make it make sense despite the atonality is just really extraordinary and it holds up so well after nearly a hundred years and uh, I would like to announce announce my intention now to at some point um, this year before July 16th put together a little special episode on Wozzeck. Um okay. but if you send me a hundred thousand dollars I will Hold your breath, stop. Everybody. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he won't do it. In no, this, I'd like to I'd like to hear that. Be, so please that'd be amazing. Go for that it. would be really amazing. Uh Yuval Sharon also mentioned in that same New York Times article. Oh yes, yes. I imagine that he and wants to do um <laughs> yeah. uh, he wants to do Wojciech backwards, but because the original play by Garrick Buchner was written to be performed the scenes in any order. I don't know how much it's already backwards. There we go. Uh, good call, bad call, of course, is, is either sports or opera minded sports. It's a bad call this week as Major League Baseball players and owners came to consensus and got next season going. There were concessions on both sides, including there is now going to be a league universal designated hitter. 
previously the American League had a designated hitter and the National League did not. That is changing. I am so shocked that this is happening in my lifetime. I cannot tell you how <laughs> against this I am. I think the National League should not have a DH at all. And I'm just so disappointed that the DH rule is now universal across the league. Tragic. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer, he's Norm Waddell, and Norm's at normwaddell.com. If you're watching on TDO, make sure that you subscribe to the whole podcast. Stitcher, Spotify, you're going to click follow. On Apple Podcasts, you just hit the plus sign. Be sure to send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes, your bracket suggestions, operaboxscore at gmail.com. I'm going to get that beer coaster, that OBS lapel pen. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you deal with your Kiss Me, I'm Irish cold sores. We're back with an all-new show next week when Weston and Ashley fill out their corners of the best composer of the past four centuries bracket. Plus, you're going to get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more queens Donizetti or otherwise. Join us.